0: Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boon peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their Elders, past and present, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded, and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah.
1: Alternative news, analysis and current pants. affairs, Monday to Friday, 7am
2: to late 30am.
0: Good morning. And good morning Ella, how are you? Yeah, nice to be here. It looked like we might uh, not make it to the studio this morning. We both <laughs> ran into issues, but I'm glad to say we've both arrived. Uh, my We're car all wouldn't dear. start. You forgot your key, but between the two of us, we got here and got in okay.
3: <laughs> We're
0: both here ready for the Wednesday breakfast show again. Yes, that's right.
3: <laughs> and uh, how are our listeners this morning? It's not quite as chilly as it was yesterday. Yesterday was absolutely biting cold.
0: Uh, yeah, and it's some um, yeah that real kind of wet and windy cold which seems to get into your bones a bit mm. more and yeah um uh, makes it tough to bear. But yeah, I'm very ready for winter to end and Six spring to days. begin. Yeah, not long. <laughs> it doesn't feel like it at the end, but yeah, it is. It's true. <laughs> it never really quite finishes in
3: September, but we at least feel more optimistic. I think.
0: Yes, I um, hope. <laughs> You know, I'm from Queensland, so usually September we get a nice warm spring, but I'll brace myself for Melbourne. (laughs) (laughs) Still adjusting. (laughs) So what's um, been on in your week? uh, Yeah, not a lot. I've been working a lot this week, and I've got a new housemate, so that's always exciting. Oh, Um, interesting. One's gone, one's come. Um, And yeah, my old housemate's cat is still at the house. She's going to follow him to America eventually, but uh, she's got another six weeks here with me. I think she was um, feeling the blues a bit on the weekend when she realised, um, yeah, her owner wasn't coming back for a while. Um, but uh, yeah, she's doing well now. She's. Uh...
3: <laughs> I just heard an interesting uh, item on the radio coming in, actually, and uh, it was about dogs, not cats. But apparently an experiment was done in Japan where they put uh, little masks under the eyes of dogs and then did a test where different people, the, the animal was left alone and then different people would come into the room to greet it. And uh, the first group of people were people that the dog didn't know. And then the second was the actual owner. And uh, with the, then they removed the little masks they were removed after the owners had come. They were all wet with tears.
0: Yeah, I read the same thing, actually. <laughs> I think it was yesterday I was reading through. But they were um, happy tears as well, like they had were measuring oxytocin. Was yes, that exactly. Yeah, so, they that were, they, so they had emotion. Tears of joy at their, um, yeah, <laughs> So maybe, unfortunately, your cat is... Um, In the the first group, you haven't quite built the bond up enough. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think cats are usually pretty brutal (laughs) once there's someone there feeding them. (laughs) Um, But yeah, nice to know dogs miss us, I guess. So it's funny, these experiments which try and measure... Crying, so maybe it's just constant <laughs> <laughs> yeah, leaking out that oxytocin all the time. I give it away easy. <laughs> and what have we got on for the show this morning? Yeah, so your first cab off the rink this morning, I believe, Claudia.
3: Yes, at seven ten, we've got Rouge Armidi coming in to speak with us. Um, she is one of the speakers at this Friday's. Forum for Dwelling Justice that's taking place at the Capitol Theatre at RMIT uh, from 1pm till 7:30pm and it's organized by RMIT's Centre for Urban Research and the event is it's quite an incredible lineup of campaigners and activist scholars and prominent indigenous voices and they're looking basically at the intersectionality of colonial systems of racial violence Prisons and land and housing injustice. So Rouge is going to be coming in um, to to talk about the event and to share some of the themes that will be uh, talked about.
0: Great! It looks like a really good event. Yeah, got a huge panel of as you yeah, said, and uh, listeners, and uh, please people.
3: come along if you're interested. It's uh, open for everyone and it is uh, a free ticketed event. And then we're going to follow that with. Um, another conversation which is related to the uh, Forum for Dwelling uh, Injustice. And that's with Jasmine Bazzani. She's a documentary filmmaker who has made a film called Bendigo Street and that's going to be screened at uh, the Dwelling Justice Forum. So we're going to hear from her about the film and uh, some of the messages that relate to housing uh in
0: melbourne excellent and um yeah then just before eight we're going to hear from the lost and science team um so claire um looked at some new research that links hearing with the evolution of warm blooded animals so it'll be interesting to hear more um and then i'm going to finish off the show chatting to lucy honan from the refugee action collective uh so they've got a rally on today Uh, arts for permanent visas for refugees so um the Labor government have promised a lot of uh, permanent visas for a lot of refugees who are on bridging visas or awaiting a decision. Um, so yeah, it should be a really important event. Uh, we've got some very interesting speakers happening, and Lucy's going to tell us more. Good, um, and good show. Yeah, for the show this morning. Uh, before we get into it, I might pop on a song. Um, this is sincerely Grizzly with Two Face. We'll be back with you shortly. Mm-hmm. We're listening to 3CR Breakfast, and we just heard Two-Face from Sincerely Grizzly. Thank
3: you, Ella. And on to our first segment for this morning. Well, it would be hard to live in Australia right now and not be aware of the critical state of affairs in the housing sector. But mainstream conversations are generally pitched in economic terms, with the emphasis on supply and demand issues, affordability and rising mortgage rates. But as 3CR listeners well know, the issues impacting housing availability and security in Australia have been around much longer than the policymakers would like you to think they have. And recent economic volatility does not explain the deeper sources of pain and injustice experienced by those who don't have a secure place to live. This Friday in Nam, Australia's dwelling crisis will be interrogated through a colonial lens. Looking at the systems of racial violence, prisons, and land housing injustice, and their relationship in perpetuating white settler dominance in Australia, the Forum for Dwelling Justice, organised by RMIT's Centre for Urban Research, brings together an incredible lineup of grassroots campaigners, activists, scholars, and prominent Indigenous voices. Among them, strategist, organizer, and writer Rouge Armidi. Rouge is a Campaigns Director at the Foundation for Young Australians. She's Chair of the Human Rights Arts and Film Festival and on the Steering Committee of the Law and Advocacy Centre for Women. We welcome her to breakfast this morning to tell us more about this event. Good morning, Rouge. Good
4: morning, Claudia. Thanks so much for having me.
3: Thanks for making time to speak uh, to us. Now, this event is a really a big thing, I think. It's an event of real scale and uh, huge depth. So I wonder if you can begin by expanding on some of the things you'll be discussing at the forum and why it's so essential to actively promote the connection between colonial systems when we talk about housing or dwelling justice in Australia.
5: I
4: think the Forum of Dwelling Justice is really perfectly encapsulated by Eileen Morden robinson who observed that The sense of belonging, home and place enjoyed by the non-Indigenous subject, the colonizer or migrant, is based on the disposition of the original owners of the land and the denial of our rights under international customary law. And so when we talk about housing justice, we kind of create this false dichotomy or an opposition between, uh, you know, public housing and private housing, but both is just a transfer of power to the same actors and leads to the same dispossession of First Nations people. So without that acknowledgement, without that kind of realistic um, material acknowledgement of ongoing dispossession of First Nations people in so-called Australia, we can't have an honest conversation about what home and social infrastructure um, and housing can actually look like, and so we tend to, you know, lose the battle on this kind of discussion because we're not being honest about that dynamic. Um, I've been really, I'm, I'm like quite honoured to be part of this like absolute incredible lineup um, that was convened by David Kelly and Libby Porter at RMIT. Um, it, it it includes people I've worked alongside and also admired for the last 10, 15 years of my community organizing um, experience. You know, activist scholars, um, politicians. We've got Deb Kilroy, David Singh, um, Pat Spike, uh, Kelly Whitworth from the Homelessness um, Persons Union of Victoria. Um, we've got Elizabeth Flynn. Um, all of these people who, you know, I have, worked alongside and uh, in quite grassroots context where we've been kind of trying to shift the conversation and narrative. And so it's really um, impressive that we'll be convening at the Capitol um, to really kind of, like, grapple with these, like, deeper conversations that are often had outside of institutions. Um, I think when you start with the basis of... um, of, you know, of the notion of First Nation sovereignty and building solidarity with the First Nation sovereignty. Conversations around refugee justice, homelessness, uh, resistance to state violence takes a completely different, um, you know, uh, approach. And so that's what we're trying to do is kind of expand that as both people who are First Nations, but also people working in solidarity and constantly trying to self-reflect, but also act in accordance to First Nations sovereignty as often and as um, consistently as possible.
3: Yeah, exactly. And the program is set up for three key panel conversations. I know you're on one of the panels, uh, so I just wondered if you could tell us a little bit about what your panel will be discussing and possibly um, the other two panels as well if you're um, up on what they're doing.
4: Yeah, so our conversation will be um, involving um, Natalie Ironfield, Deb Kilroy, Whit Gorey um, and uh, representatives from the Police Accountability Project. Um, And uh, our conversation is around how do we navigate... um, like and how our practitioners in racial justice and uh, racial justice in not in the sense of like just kind of um, holding to account racism within the system but really uh, bringing the people who are at the coalface of racial violence and, and working towards um, justice for them and so um, a lot of us have been practitioners across, um, refugee justice, um, uh, prisons. Whit Gori, um, is a very, like, good friend of mine who has been working to, um, release trans people who have been caught in the prison system, um, who've been often violated, who've experienced, like, immeasurable trauma due to the prison and police system and has been working, um, for, um, numerous years to get people out and so it's really making that kind of significant material um, difference. And then Deb Kilroy, um, as head of Sisters Inside, has kind of been pushing for, especially in my in um, in the state of Queensland, pushing for prison abolition, which is a huge like shift in a markedly um, oppositional position in comparison to a lot of non-governmental organisations and non-for-profits. So really kind of putting... That conversation into practice. What does it look like? And, you know, we're often seeking reformist agendas, but how do we seek these kind of reformist agendas that are seemingly reformist, but ultimately shift the kind of material dynamics in order to work towards abolition, to work towards um, uh, sovereignty and uh, justice? And so, you know, I think that a lot of people can put all their cards on the table around these issues, but to actually shift the dial on these issues, putting those things in practice looks very, very different. And so I think that, um, uh, you know, the theory, the relationship between theory and practice, I think that we'll be really uncovering that, um, and hopefully supporting the audience to reflect on how they can do that as well, and how they can build um, communities of solidarity around those issues.
3: Yeah, we'll come back to the um, practical side of it in a moment, but I just wanted to ask you to unpack uh, the ideas around abolition. Um, I'm sure there are lots of abolitionists in our audience listening this morning, but for those who aren't as familiar with the relationship between prisons and sovereignty and uh, issues with housing, um, I just wonder if you could expand on that theory for our audience.
4: Yeah, absolutely. So prison abolition, um, I think, sometimes takes a very kind of Americanized bent. But essentially it says that the um, socio-political features of our society that lead to um, homelessness, degradation, etc., etc., and then create prisons as a solution for poverty for disenfranchisement, for um, racism. You know, that in in all of these kind of complex socio-political issues that are a very intentional policy outcome and decision by governments and um, political forces, ultimately what they also decide is that the solution for those things is prison. And so it's about changing the kind of uh, material context that leads to you know society assuming that prisons are the solution and so it says prisons are not the solution that impact that the places in this world that have low prison rates have stable housing access to education access to health care um, that they have political power that they can engage in their politics however they choose they have agency and so that is what um... uh... Um, prison abolition kind of espouses. In this context, pr- prison abolition takes a very kind of unique um, uh, manifestation because the people most, um, uh, most highly incarcerated and targeted by police in the world are First Nations people in Australia. And uh, they're both Indigenous and Black people. So it takes a kind of very specific material experience Um, to be targeted by a uh, colonial power that started off as a prison. And so when you think about the connection between prisons and housing, you really reflect on that the First Nations people's homes and sovereignty have been impeded on and um, extinguished by colonial settler uh, law and domination. And so that dispossession is that initial dispossession of housing, you know, you, that dispossession of First Nation sovereignty is that first initial um, act of housing and justice. Um, which why, which is why we use the term dwelling um, uh, dwelling justice, and so when you look at that first act of dispossession and then you look at the kind of historical and ongoing rates of imprisonment and targeting by police and um you know the violent apparatus of the state so not often not only is the police but often the healthcare system often um, uh, the departments across the country that take kids away from um, their parents and their families at higher rates than during um, the stolen generation period, you see that the kind of the need for prison abolition is not only to create the material circumstances that avoid or circumvent the need for prisons as a solution to poverty disenfranchisement but also prison abolition takes a very um uh, sovereign um bent because to destroy prisons is to also affirm first Nations sovereignty to hand back home and land um to first nations people and so it takes quite a kind of quite a sophisticated Lens, Um, And I know that a lot of First Nations scholars have kind of taken that on. Um, And as practitioners, we're students of that scholarship. And so um, ultimately, that's what uh, prison abolition can mean and does mean in this context.
3: And that's before you get to the impact of the experience of going through the criminal justice system (laughs) and being in prison um, and the impact that has on people's lives uh, at the other end when they re-enter society and uh, face all the, the challenges of uh, resurrecting a life.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that one of the key things and trends that we've seen in housing over the last 20 to 30 years is a liberalisation or kind of a handover of um public you know we tend to like in housing justice we tend to frame public as a general good like public housing as a general good and the private market as a harmful capitalistic system now the private market is still a harmful market system um that a lot that locks out a lot of people a lot of like people made vulnerable by the system and then ultimately then it locks them out of a safe and secure house um and home but Through dwelling justice, we see public housing as um, as that kind of continuing condition of colonial dispossession. But what we've also seen is that the government um, uh, government bodies have taken this kind of like um, uh, made this decision that we hand over, you know, public good. Public land over to community housing. And community housing is often run by nonprofit organizations, um, For the, and often they're set up for the sole purpose of managing this community housing. And this community housing um, is often called social housing. And social housing includes both public housing, which is managed by the government, and, com- and community housing, which is managed by nonprofits. And these community housing organizations. Uh, rely on government funding and rely on public good to manage this housing. But what it means is that the people who are most, like, made most vulnerable by the system and by the prison um, system cannot access this housing because they often require you know, deep uh, um, deep support. They need like uh, you know cross uh, cross services. They need um, healthcare support, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, which these community housing organisations do not have the capacity to. And oftentimes, like young women who are uh, who are you know maybe struggling with um, drug addiction or um, or deep kind of mental illnesses that need like deep support and care and community care are denied access. So so they're, they're only providing what was formerly public housing um, handed over to the community housing organizations, and they're only providing it to a very kind of particular subset of um, housing needs, which does not respond to the thousands upon thousands of um, people who uh, continue to join the um, public housing list. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, and so, like, there is this kind of trend that's happening, so there's a relationship. There's people who are trying to re-enter society, but also there are people who should be safe and secure in their house, in their home, um, that are entering the prison system as a result of this lack of access and a lack of public good. So how do you kind of hold both those kind of conflicting um, notions, but also um, uh, interrelated notions together? And that's what we'll be discussing at um, the Forum for Dwelling Justice.
3: And Finally, because we need to wrap up, Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to ask you one more question. Um, The aim of the forum is to unravel these connections and uh, allow people to engage with the depth of uh, their importance. But secondary and perhaps primary as well is to build solidarity among the movements and grow the interest in in campaigning and action, which brings us to that practical side of this event. Uh, In what ways are people able to participate on the day and also outside the event?
4: Uh, The various individuals that are participating in the event have and are leading um, movements for sovereignty and for housing justice. And so... I'm sure that there are kind of opportunities where you can either donate your time, donate your resources, donate your funds um, in really key moments. I think it's really important, like, you know, like the most kind of incredible thing is that all these individuals uh, speaking across all three panels, I've either worked with um, very closely or I've, you know, campaigned with across a coalition. And so bringing us all together under Dwelling Justice gives us an opportunity to unite, but also to connect with the audience as well. Um, One of the key um, priorities um, and objectives that um, David and Libby, um, David Kelly and Libby Porter, who are convening this forum, really wanted is to kind of like break down the um, barriers between us as practitioners but then also the practitioners in the audience and so I invite anyone who is attending um, and tuning in to um, reach out because there are great opportunities um, and there will be great ideas coming out of the panels as well and it's you know we really need to strike wise eye in this heart.
3: Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for talking uh, to us this morning and uh, giving our listeners some insight into this fantastic uh, event. I'll look forward to seeing you there on on Friday. I've got myself a ticket and we'll be putting all the details of um, how you can get along to that event on our show notes. That was campaigner Rouge Armidi speaking about the forum for dwelling justice this Friday 26th of August at the Capitol Theatre at RMIT on Swanston Street Nam Melbourne and the event kicks off at 1pm and runs through till 7:30pm uh, there'll be a couple of documentary screenings as well which we'll be talking about shortly And it's free or by donation. So please check it out. Uh, You can head on to the website cur.org.au forward slash events forward slash Dwelling Justice. And thank you again, Rouge, for
0: joining us. And uh, we'll be back with you shortly. In the meantime, here's uh, Marlon Williams and Leah Flanagan with iBlind.
6: Sitting here in this lonely old guest house I'm sure my life is all through Scratching fleas and watching a grey mouse I'm making love to the memory. ¡Suscríbete
2: 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings, cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au
5: What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. in to done by law
4: an informal and irreverent look at the law critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives
2: done by law 6 p.m tuesdays
3: Welcome back. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast uh, with Claudia and Ella in the studio this morning. Hope you're all doing well out there. Uh, We just had a a break and heard from Marlon Williams and Leah Flanagan. I lied. And before that, we've been talking about the Forum for Dwelling Justice that's taking place this Friday at RMIT's Capital Theatre. We'd Already spoken with Rouge Amidi this morning about some of the themes that are going to be discussed on Friday. And now we're going to hear from Iranian Kurdish radical media maker Jasmine Bazani, whose documentary film Bendigo Street will be screened at the theatre as part of the Dwelling Justice Forum. Benigo Street tells the story of the 2016 activist-led housing campaign in which people moved into unoccupied houses in Collingwood. Jasmine shares her ideas around housing justice and dwelling justice, and the importance of including land justice and sovereignty in discussions about housing systems and housing security. Jasmine spoke to Iris from 3CR's Queering the Air program, and we're going to pick up the conversation as she explains how Bendigo Street came about.
7: Yeah, totally. So in 2016, a friend of ours, she was kicked out of a house that she was squatting in in NAM, in Collingwood, and that house was owned by... The state government, but it was being managed by Magpie's Nest, which is a like kind of Salvation Army venture. So those guys were given twenty houses that were compulsorily acquired for the East Westlink Highway project. Uh, they were given those houses to house people who are experiencing homelessness and it was reported in the media oh the government's so great look at them they gave these 20 houses to uh, people experiencing homelessness there was about 300 houses that was in the government's possession that they had because of this highway project that was just now sitting unused and abandoned for up to two years and then after it was given to magpie's nest it was still left empty and unused those 20 houses for a further six months and so you know like we just did a little bit of digging about the situation did some research talked to some people and we were like this is really bad this is really corrupt that the government is just sitting on these empty houses in the middle of a very very serious housing situation in melbourne where people cannot afford rent people are stressed out there's like you know at that year, there was 247 people who were counted in the CBD as sleeping on the cold concrete, you know, in winter, and there were just 300 empty houses, you know, that could have been given to these people. Anyway, so we were like, let's occupy one of these houses and do a protest, right? That protest ended up lasting eight months, basically. <laughs> so that's the negotiate campaign.
8: Yeah, it's pretty really amazing. Nothing that struck me the other week at the launch was how, like, many different, like, communities Benigo Street came, like, brought together in, a, like, a real way. No. Why do you think Benigo Street was able to do that? Is there something about housing and justice mm-hmm. that brings together, like, all, like, the issues with colonialism and, cap- and capitalism?
7: Yeah. I think the reason that it was able to bring those things together was... Firstly, because of the people who were involved in the campaign. Secondly, because of the nature of housing being such an intersectional issue that really spans across, you know, everything, basically, like gender, you know, um, race, like class, like everything that you can think of relates to housing. Um, And yeah, and I think the fact that the campaign had something of real substance to offer people who were in immediate need of housing, um, that attracted a certain demographic of people, who had up until that point maybe not participated so much in the types of actions and activism that we were doing, which was, I think, the greatest strength of the Bendigo Street campaign, you know, to, to, yeah, provide an opportunity for people to be housed, like that people who really needed housing, who were sleeping rough. Um, and in that process of, providing that opportunity, actually showing people how to get involved in radical direct action. Like, I don't know if that answers your question, but it was a pretty unique thing because of the context of the campaign and, and what its resources and what it had control and power of, I guess, which was housing
8: yeah there's something like very different about direct action in terms of just like protesting on the streets not directly like in terms of providing material support for housing and how benigo street like involved protesting and providing material support that yeah that's something that i guess we can learn a lot from in terms of radical change i guess
7: yeah, fully, totally. Like, I think it is such a powerful thing for a campaign to be able to actually be supporting the people who are participating in the campaign. Like, for me, that's what mutual aid is, right? Like, mm. that's very, very mutual aid. And I feel like Bendigo Street was, like, such a perfect example of, yeah, people, people doing mutual aid by helping each other housing, whilst also talking about how are going to resist the state repression, how are we going to make a demand, how are we going to leverage what we've got against the system to get something out of this that is going to be like long-term and valuable, you know?
8: Yeah, for sure. And I guess also thinking about, I was thinking about how there's many, like, organisations that the state contracts things out for and provides heaps of resources to, like, the salvos that were given, workers were given housing, weren't they?
7: Yeah, that's that's the favourite bit of information, I think, uh, to, to folks to know because I think, like, yeah, I just, I don't want to go on too long about it, but basically, long story short, is that, you know, One of the things that we uncovered during our time living and squatting and occupying Bendigo Street was that these houses that were being, a few of the houses on the street that were being managed by the Salvation Army that had people inside, like that they had actually gotten people to live in, those people had previously worked for the Salvation Army. So they were housing their own workers. And this is such a like important example I feel of the problem of social housing ie housing that is run by private organizations that is not the state because they can discriminate against whoever they choose they don't have to prioritize people who have been waiting the longest they can literally just act however they like, house whoever they think they want to house and this thing that was going on which was very 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 corrupt and really awful it was never reported on by the mainstream media that was covering the issue constantly for 8 months you know despite us telling them hey you know this this fact is evident just go talk to these people you'll be able to find it out and unfortunately the mainstream media doesn't really investigate Issues like this with much depth, and we learnt that a lot through the campaign.
8: Mm. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I know you're you're a radical media maker. What do you see of the challenges of like radical media through film?
7: I think the like there's. I see two main challenges: one that comes from within, and one that comes from outside. Like. Within the challenge with radical media is consultation, right? And and community care and just making sure that everyone is okay with, you know, consent. Everyone consents. Everyone's okay. Everyone, you know, that this footage is about wants this footage to be about them. And that's a really difficult um, task to do when especially you're talking about a campaign that involves people who don't have housing, stable housing, because finding these people to get consent from them was a nightmare, first of all. Mm. Um, So that's a really big challenge, I think, because of resources, which I think comes to the second point, kind of naturally, which is the struggle from the outside, I see as funding and resources, because media is one of the things that, Like, you can't just volunteer, really, to do it because it's very labor-intensive, like, very, very, very... Especially film, which is a medium that incorporates audio, visual, you know, everything, text, everything. It's a very, very, very dense and time-consuming form of art. So the challenge, I think, with getting a lot of really well-produced radical media out there that will actually draw the attention of people is money, basically, and funding and resources, which is why the right is, like, really, I think, in a way, succeeding a lot more with getting their versions of radical media, but the bad kind of radical, the extremist right kind Mm -hmm. of radical, um, they're they're getting a lot out there uh, because of their access to money, basically.
8: Yeah, that is a real thing and, pe- and listeners can go and support the fundraiser, for the crowdraiser for Bendigo Street and you can find it at bendigostreet.com. There's a link, a support tab there.
7: Also, yeah, the Documentary Australia Foundation website has the fundraiser going right now at the moment for the Bendigo Street documentary to get it from a 20-minute short documentary to a feature-length 60-minute documentary. And it's twenty thousand dollars that
8: we're asking for to be able to get that done. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Another thing with Grove Street is there was a lot of messaging, connecting housing and prisons, like housing, not jails, it was like one of the banners in front of houses. What What are the what's relationship for you between housing, prisons, and abolition?
7: Yeah, well, there's, like, so many ways that these things connect, right? But I think the most obvious thing is, like, criminalization, you know, and how it leads to destroying people's lives, right? And it and it leads to homelessness, like the processes of being dragged through the courts and the processes of being convicted for things that have been criminalised through colonialism, you know, through capitalism, through a purposeful wanting to repress and uh, repress and marginalise, you know, varying degrees of other people in order to uphold the protection of white property, which is basically what the law and the legal instruments of this country do. And that, all of that, it destroys people's lives. It really does. And a lot of people who are also... People who experience homelessness also are criminalised. Um, we saw that during the COVID-19 pandemic and as the Homeless in Hotels podcast, you know, show, is that the criminalization of homelessness leads to carceral solutions and the carceral response um to yeah basically again doing all those things that as an abolitionist critique of the um the criminal justice well you know the criminal legal system mm. yeah basically tells us about why these things are being criminalized
8: yeah definitely and there's a forum coming up on Friday, the Forum for Dwelling Justice, which will provide a link to listeners in the show notes. And Bendigo Street is being shown there, the short version of it, at, I think, at the Capitol Theatre, the big RMIT place on Swanston Street.
7: Yeah, it's going to be a really cool event linking a lot of these issues in a much more articulate way than myself. <laughs> but yeah, like if people want to get more involved in... Homes Not Prisons campaigning specifically. The Homes Not Prisons campaign is a very cool campaign to get involved with as well. And they're going to be putting on a protest before the state election and they'll be at the Dwelling Justice event as well on the
8: 26th of August. Mm. Awesome. Yeah, because the last decade or so, like, there were also three years where the Liberals were in power, but it's been mostly the Labor Party and they've invested oh, yeah. records of billions of dollars in policing and prisons. Yeah. And they still maintain a progressive image. Some people are fooled by this, but it's pretty clear in terms of housing and prisons, what materially, like who Labor supports. They support like cops and people, housing deprivation, which I think is a term you used in a yeah. in an interview because like the state's actively depriving people of housing. Yeah,
7: Did, absolutely.
8: One uh, One thing I was also going to ask you is, what are you hoping as a legacy for Benigo Street?
7: I really just want to, at a very simple level, inspire people to act and get involved in whatever way they think, you know, they want to act. Like, there's so many different ways that you can. Like, from literally just voting for, you know, the simplest thing, like voting for a party that has a housing platform, and has a be a or abolitionist or um, reducing funding to the prison industrial complex kind of platform. Um, something as simple as that to, you know, getting involved or volunteering like once a week with a grassroots organisation that's already fighting for dwelling justice, you know, like Homes Not Prisons or the Rent and Housing Union or getting involved in peer-driven projects that are run by people that are you know producing media and information and knowledge from direct pro- directly from people who have a lived experience of the shit they 're talking about themselves, you know like so many different things and ways that you can act and get involved and I think a lot of us like who 've been doing this kind of thing for a little while, like you know you consistently get that feeling in Nam, um, you know which is like we need more people, you know like we need more people on our side, we need more people doing stuff. There's just, ne- it just never really feels like there's enough. There's always the same people doing the you know, same work and being over capacity and getting burnt out and all this stuff. So I would really just like to see an expanded movement um, across all of the different areas of relevance to housing and dwelling justice.
8: Why dwelling justice in terms of that term instead of housing justice?
7: Yeah, so what I understand of the term dwelling justice and maybe other people have a different, um, you know, opinion or a different perspective, but from my understanding, dwelling justice, it encapsulates the Indigenous demand for sovereignty and justice in their homeland and and the places where they reside, right? And it Mm. includes it encompasses that, right? The issue with housing per se in a way is it's invested in a settler colonial futurity, right? In the sense of, okay, we want public housing. Yes. Like, right. We definitely all know that public housing is going to be like the number one solution, easiest direct solution to getting people housed in a way that is affordable. It's long-term, you know? Um, But at the same time, like, we need to not forget that these houses are still going to be occupying Aboriginal land and that that's not the end for justice, uh, for justice of where we call home. Right. Because even if all of even if everybody had a house, right. Mm. These it's still not controlled by Aboriginal people. Right. It's like this land is still not so like. It's not, yeah, this land is not being controlled and governed by Aboriginal people. We still have a settler colonial government here dictating the rules and telling people what the go is. So I think dwelling justice is really cool, is a really cool concept. And I've like incorporated it in the way that I talk about things. And I hope that it catches on a little bit more and that people start using it because, yeah, I think the way that it intervenes is, is important.
3: And that was Jasmine Bazani, writer and director of the documentary film Bendigo Street, sharing her perspectives on housing and dwelling justice in Nam, and inviting listeners to watch a screening of her film this Friday at the Capitol Theatre, Swanston Street at 5.30pm. And as we said, that's part of RMIT's forum on dwelling justice. And for more information on the Forum of Dwelling Justice, if you've just tuned in, you can head to cur.org.au forward slash events forward slash dwelling justice or to buy a ticket at www.eventbrite.com.au forward slash e forward slash Forum for Dwelling Justice tickets and A note that the event is free or by donation for those with means to contribute, but bookings are required. And the Capital Theatre venue is fully accessible, uh, but the event will also be live streamed. If you can't get in there yourself, uh, you'll be able to catch it on your screen at home. If anyone would like to donate to the fundraiser for the Bendigo Street to to bring it to a full feature-length documentary... You can head to their website www.bendigost.com forward slash support, or you can head to the Documentary Australia uh, website and uh, head to their um, menu for Bendigo Street. And a big thanks to Iris from Queering the Air for sharing this piece with us this morning. And you can catch queering the air every Sunday from three to 4 p.m. on 3CR.
0: You're listening to 3CR breakfast. Um, we're going to take a quick break now. When we come back, we'll hear from the Lost and Science team about some new research, uh, which links hearing with the evolution of warm-blooded animals. Uh, but in the meantime, here's codachroma with out-of-body.
2: Get your free ticket to the upcoming Forum for Dwelling Justice, an activist-driven event featuring speakers including Senator Lydia Thorpe, Debbie Kilroy, Rouge Amity, Whit Gari, and more. The forum brings together grassroots activists and campaign groups to strengthen solidarity movements resisting ongoing colonial dispossession, housing injustice, incarceration, and poverty. The forum ends with film screenings and a discussion between Uncle Larry Walsh, the filmmakers, and guests with lived experience of homelessness, displacement, squatting, and public housing. The event will run from 1 to 7 p.m. on Friday, the 26th of August at the Capitol Theatre, 113 Swanson Street, Narm. Entry is by donation. Join us to identify the radical potential for resistance to dispossession and displacement in Narm. To register, head to cur.org.au forward slash events or check the 3CR website for details. The Forum for Dwelling Justice is brought to you by RMIT's Centre for Urban Research, a 3CR supporter.
1: Tune in to stick together all about workers rights and social justice.
6: 8:30 am. Wednesday 7 am Saturday
7: or listen on demand on 3CR's website 3cr.org.au You're listening to 3CR breakfast.
0: 8.55am uh, 5, 5 on the dial. Um, and now we're going to jump to a segment from Lost in Science. Um, so here we're going to hear Claire telling Chris about some new research, uh, which looks at um, how hearing is linked with the evolution of warm-blooded animals. So without further ado, over to the Lost in Science team.
1: So Chris, when you think about the difference between mammals and something like, let's say, reptiles or fish, what comes to mind that really separates us? Mm, scales? <laughs> um, I mean, I guess not all reptiles would have scales, I would say, but um, maybe something a bit sort of um, closer to your heart?
9: Uh, is it something to do with, like, um, <laughs>
1: your... is it called endotherms? Yes, um, that is. You remember your year nine biology. Endotherms and right, ectotherms yeah. Our warm blood Versus, our cold, versus their cold blood. Um, yeah, we are in a very unique and enviable situation as mammals where we produce our own body heat and we control our own body temperature. Like you say, we are endotherms or warm-blooded. And there's a lot of reasons to be glad and happy um, about something we had no control about. But being warm, <laughs> warm-blooded, we can... As humans and as mammals, we can withstand colder environments, which means we can be more active in the day and the night um, and it makes us more sus- less, sorry, less susceptible to pathogens and fungi, uh, especially when compared to our cold-blooded cousins. And um, we also tend to, as a result, reproduce as well. So this is all very advantageous and in fact maybe one of the main reasons <clears throat> and in fact maybe one of the main reasons why mammals tend to dominate almost every global ecosystem so really warm-bloodedness uh, it's you know the key to making mammals what we are today and it was likely the starting point where all the other parts of mammalness like maybe the hair on our bodies um, and other things evolved. Now, I mean, obviously we're not the only animals sort of warm-blooded. I mean, birds. Hey, birds are it? too. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And allegedly, dinosaurs, uh, many dinosaurs probably were warm-blooded. So really? Is it a, um, okay, I didn't know. Is this is something that, that, that I've that I've heard. Mm-hmm. I'm so I'm curious. Like, if you're looking at um, how mammals became warm-blooded. Whether it's conversion evolution with our birds and dinosaural friends—that is a very interesting point. I won't go like I haven't gone into that in this story, but maybe would be good to follow up on that because, yeah, would it have been conversion or would it have just happened once and then birds? Yeah, I don't know. Hmm, hmm, interesting. Mm. Science, (laughs) future science, um. So, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of big mysteries of evolution. Um, and until now, well, until recently, we haven't known exactly, you know, when warm bloodedness became a thing specifically for our mammalian ancestry. Most scientists had speculated that the transition to warm bloodedness was very gradual. It was a process that happened over like tens of millions of years. Um, And some people, some researchers had suggested it happened quite close to the origin of mammals. So when mammals, when sort of like, you know, mammals actually really um, started turning up in the fossil record. But there hasn't been a lot of evidence to back this up. But a new paper published in Nature this week, it's pricked the ears um, of uh, evolutionary scientists around the world because for the first time, scientists have looked at the fossil record of early mammal inner ears and, you know, non-mammals as well. So looked at the whole sort of fossil record, looked at the inner ears and from that have drawn conclusions about when mammals became warm blooded Um, The papers called Inner Ear Biomechanics Reveals, Reveals, a late Triassic origin for mammalian. End of them. So there you go. Well wow. so the late triassic that is fairly early in the whole thing that is like mm. of your, your your big kind of your big 3 year triassic the jurassic and the cretaceous that one's the one that came first so that's when the dinosaurs were first emerging and i think mammals were first emerging too wasn't it really Well there you go yeah yeah um it was actually um spoiler alert <laughs> the end of the story but it was actually before mammals um uh, evolved so there you go. Okay. Yeah, it was a little So bit what ahead. is it about the inner ear that tells us? Oh, I'm so glad you asked, Chris. Um, I mean, this is a very fascinating story because it's sort of, first of all, a link between the anatomy of the inner ear and warm-bloodedness. It was a bit of an educated guess between the publishing scientists. Um, they sort of had this hunch that there was this link with the inner ear and warm-bloodedness. Um, and secondly, they needed... They needed, I guess, it was only, I guess, bef- because they had access to this incredibly abundant and diverse fossil record in South Africa of all these land mammals that ha- that that is located, you know, I think it's in the Karoo Valley in South Africa, at the specific time period that they were looking at, that they could go to this fossil record and actually compare many, many, many different fossils to be able to get a really clear understanding of um, a whole lot of different, uh, different extinct species, inner ears to look at, you know, to actually pinpoint the time. So let me start first with the scientist intuition. Started with the two researchers thinking about the inner ear. And as anyone who's ever felt motion sick knows the inner ear, it's not all about hearing it, as you said in the intro. It houses the organ of balance. These are called semicircular canals. That's where, that's where the magic of balance happens in these semicircular canals. Now there are three semicircular canals. And if you can imagine them, um, they're oriented in three dimensions in space. So there's an X, a Y, and a Z plane in your semicircular canals. And they're filled with a fluid that flows in the canals and as the head moves, it activates receptors to tell the brain exactly sort of the three-dimensional position of the head and body. Now, the runniness or the viscosity of, um, the fluid in these semicircular canals is critical to the balance, um, to, to balance pretty much. So, um, this this fluid and the way that this that these sort of um, semicircular canals are structured are in, is incredibly important. But this fluid, just like honey or any other sort of liquid that has a viscosity, it's quite a lot runnier in warmer conditions than in cold conditions. So you can imagine where we're going here, right? So. Um, <clears throat> We have these semicircular canals, um, and we have this liquid that, in cold-blooded creatures, would be like the honey left in the fridge, like honey that you leave in the fridge or on a cold winter morning. And so the semicircular. they that really kind of crystallized? Really, <laughs> honey that that but only white. It's really crystallized, but also it just does not flow. Yeah. Um, so the actual semicircular canals are shaped and adapted for this slow-moving, slow-flowing, cold winter morning honey. But when the honey warms up and becomes runny, the fluid and the canals don't work the same. And so the semicircular canals have adapted a different shape or a different morphology. So this is what scientists see in warm-blooded versus cold-blooded creatures. They see this different geometry of semicircular canals all to take into account this viscosity of the inner ear liquid. It's pretty amazing. Oh. Yeah, so that's where South Africa's, um, yeah, wealth of fossils comes in. Um, so the scientists were like, okay, we just need to see when the cold to warm-blooded um, inner ear change happened and just trace these semicircular canals through geological time using using this incredible fossil record. And from there, they can pinpoint the species in which the change of geometry happened. And with that change in geometry is the change from cold blood to warm blood. So it provides this accurate guide of when warm bloodedness evolved. Um, So the Karoo region, like I said before, it's in the basin. It's a basin in South Africa. It's preserved this sort of treasure trove of fossils, many of them belonging to our mammalian ancestors. And there's pretty much an unbroken record of evolution over about 100 million years, um, documenting sort of transformation from reptilian-like animals to mammals. Um, And the researchers used CT scanning techniques. They used 3D modelling, and they were able to reconstruct the inner ear of dozens of mammalian ancestors, And from that, they could pinpoint, um, exactly which species had an inner ear anatomy that was consistent with warmer body temperatures and which ones did not. So from that, they found that our warm bloodedness developed in our mammalian ancestors, um, around 233 million years ago. So this was in the late Triassic period. So it's actually 33 million years prior to the origin of mammals. Oh wow. Yeah. So there was a lot of time there where we had warm blood but we weren't mammals yet. Hmm. So that suggests that you know all those other mammalian things that um that we evolved probably came after. <laughs> it was probably the first thing that happened. Um and according to the researchers um the warm-bloodedness evolved fairly quickly in geological terms. So they could actually see it evolve in less than a million years. So, I mean, seems like a long time to me, but in um, evolutionary uh, terms, it's pretty uh, quick. Yeah, and geologists are like there. Geologists, yeah. they don't. I don't want to say anything. I don't they, they don't, they talk, don't in. talk in generations, but do they're, they're they? Don't, they're, they not, they're not they in they a hurry. They talk in
2: eons.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there you go, Chris. You've heard it here first. The ears are the window to our warm blood and understanding just how it is that mammals came to be the dominant land animal across the world.
0: You're listening to 3CR Breakfast, and we just heard from the Lost in Science team. Um, So there was Claire talking to Chris about some new research linking hearing with the evolution of warm-blooded animals. Uh, we're going to take a very quick break Uh, when we come back we're going to talk about a rally on today Uh, they're calling for permanent visas and permanent protection for refugees this month melbourne's beloved art house cinema nova turns 30 and is inviting you to
3: celebrate Revisit cinema Nova favorites with a curated program of popular features that Melbourne movie lovers took to their hearts, including Parasite, Call Me By Your Name, Ligon Street, Sipalla Italiano, and more, tickets on sale now. CinemaNova, Melbourne's favorite independent cinema since 1992, a 3CR supporter.
1: Tune in to Stick Together, all about workers' rights and social justice.
6: 8.30am Wednesday, 7am Saturday.
7: Or listen on demand on 3CR's website, 3cr.org.au. You're
0: listening to 3CR, 855am I'm Ella, and now we're going to talk about a rally on in Melbourne today calling for permanent protection for refugees. Uh, So Anthony Albanese has promised uh, permanent visas to over 19,000 refugees currently on temporary protection visas and safe haven enterprise visas. Um, And today, a group of refugee activists are calling on the government to make good on that promise. Um, So I'm joined now by Lucy from Refugee Action Collective to tell us more. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Lucy.
5: Thanks for having me.
0: Um, Now, today's rally is calling on the government to um, keep their promise to refugees. Uh, Can you tell us about what was promised?
5: Yeah, Okay. So um, under the coalition government, the rule essentially was that no one would ever get permanent protection um, visas even if they had their refugee status granted. So um, close to 20,000 people were recognised as refugees but only granted temporary protection visa which means their visa runs out every three to five years. Um, they don't have security as in a permanent life here in Australia which has consequences for family reunions. They can't um, reunite with their family. Um, there are consequences for work, um, for education and so on. So we're calling on the government to grant security to this group of people. They have been recognised as refugees. Um, the Labor government was very quick to grant um, permanent visas to the Bill O'Heele family. They can do exactly the same thing to all of these people. The 19,500 people have been waiting a long time Um, for permanent visas. It was an election promise. It's one of the very few things that distinguishes the Labor Party from the Liberal Party in terms of refugee policies that the Labor Party did commit to permanent visas for this cohort of people. Um, But we haven't seen anything yet. Three months is three months too long when you're um, living in permanent insecurity. So that's our main focus for this rally. But um, I just wanted to add as well that on top of the people that Labor has promised permanency too. There's a huge cohort of people, about 10,000 people, for whom it is silent. But these people are on bridging visas, even more insecure, three to six month long um, visas. And the reason they're on these visas is because under the coalition government, they um, were assessed as refugees under this bogus system called the fast track system, which was which has been widely widely. Um, derided as, as an, you know, an unfair, unjust system, a way to essentially not recognise anybody's refugee status. So many, many people were denied refugee status, and as a consequence, they're on these terrible visas. Um, the, the, um, the Labor government hasn't said anything about this group of people, but this group is even more precarious. Um, when their visas run out, they don't get access to Medicare. Uh, They don't have access to Centrelink at all. So the poverty and destitution, the the anxiety, um, you know, when when young people on these visas graduate from high school, they are denied access to tertiary education. So there's a cycle of poverty um, and destitution really developing for this cohort of people and they desperately need justice.
0: Yeah. Absolutely, and um, this group of almost ten thousand people on num short-term bridging visas, are they um, does that include a lot of the people we um, heard were released from immigration detention over the last year or yeah,
5: so? Yes, that's right. So people people who have been brought from offshore detention from Nauru and PNG, um, the government is still committed to offshore detention for so those people, and that that policy that they actually created, which was that anyone who came by boat. Was not going to be granted permanency in Australia, so so that group of people are all sitting on these um, these appalling breaching visas. Yeah, if they have been brought to Australia, or they're sitting in Nauru and PNG, um, you know, uh, still in still in appalling circumstances there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. As you said, it um, it leaves a lot of people in poverty. It's incredibly restricting. And just this huge uncertainty for people who are unsure where they're going to be mm. in three to six months' time.
5: That's right. And if you've come from, I mean, these people have fled, um, you know, war zones, very very repressive regimes, etc. Like just like the Bilawila family, you know, the threat to them was that they were constant. The constant threat was that they were going to be taken back to Sri Lanka, um, you know, where they they faced. Potential torture, exclusion—it was the site of genocide, and so on. So, to to have that hanging over this group of people's heads is, is in itself a really very very cruel thing to do. I mean, there's there's, there's Afghan people, for example, on these on these um, visas. You know, where, on, on what level is it safe to send anyone back to Afghanistan at the moment? <laughs> the Afghan government fled in fear itself. So, you know, there's just there's there's just a level of um, yeah, and I, I think it's disappointing. there are a lot of people um, in the refugee community and sector who who expected Labor to deliver a lot sooner, at least on the on the temporary protection visa people. Um, so we're pushing hard that that happens.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you spoke about the Bilo Wheeler family there, and as you said, that's some really excellent news. Um, but there's a lot of people left behind, um, and uh, yeah, it's it's better than the previous government, but it's a very low bar to clear. That's <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> And I mean, um, yeah, it's kind of strange. We we covered the Biller-Wheeler family a lot on um, Wednesday breakfast. And I remember every time we'd do an interview, we'd kind of end it by saying and uh, Alan Tudge or Karen Andrews or whoever it was at the time could end all this with the stroke of a pen. Um, So it's kind of um, almost surreal to see it actually happen um, basically with the stroke of a pen when a new government came in Um, all those years of um, yeah being held basically in prison for nothing, which could have been fixed so easily.
5: Yeah, that's right. And I think that's, you know, that's a victory to the entire movement that got behind that family. And it shows that when you do push and push and push and pressure and pressure and pressure and essentially force the Labour Party to to change its decision about something, it can happen. Um, But that needs to happen on a much wider scale for, for all of these people. These are people in our schools. You know, they're in our childcare centres, they're in our communities, they're working alongside us sometimes, sometimes they're not because they don't have work rights, but these are people, you know, in our communities who have very similar stories to the Bill Wheeler family, Um, and, you know, each one of those needs to be elevated um, to to make sure that this this policy changes.
0: Yeah, and as you said, these are all people who want to contribute and be a part of the community, and... um, Obviously, people should be granted protection because it's the right thing to do, but it's also a pretty illogical system at the moment. People are unable to be a part of our community in a lot of ways.
5: Yeah, that's right. Exactly right. And people people want security for their lives. That's the, that's the basic need, you know. Um, and one one important thing about the protest this afternoon, we're going to have a, a lot of great speakers. Um, the United Workers Union is, is bringing a delegation and... They'll have two speakers, but there'll be a lot of people from the community who'll be speaking out as well. Um, there'll be an open mic, and I've had a lot of calls from people who are saying, you know, I want to get my, I want to tell my story. It's the time to tell my story. So I think there's a, it um, there will be, you know, if you are available this afternoon at four thirty um, to come along and listen and support and throw your activist weight behind this issue, this this will be a great opportunity to do it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And um, could you give us the details of the rally?
5: Sure. So it starts at 4.30pm um, starting at Capitol Place, which is 1 Lonsdale Street, um, just right up near, near uh, the corner of Lonsdale and Spring Street. Um, that's the Immigration Department, which is why we're having it there. It'll start at 4.30 so that we can catch people actually inside the Immigration Department, but the speak-out will go on until 5.30 at least, and then we'll march down to the State Library. So if you don't finish work until a bit later, still come along, join us for the for the end of it or the march down to the State Library.
0: Excellent. And, yeah, you've got a great list of speakers on the bill. So we're going to hear from the United Workers' Union Migration Clinic lawyer, uh, San Marti Verma, is that correct? Yep, that's right. Um, the United Workers' Union organiser from the farms portfolio who works with a lot of members on insecure visas, Taki Khan, uh, Green Senator Janet Rice, and um, the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. And I believe you said that we can going to also hear from a lot of people within the community who have experienced the immigration system themselves.
5: That's right. Exactly right.
0: Excellent. All right. It sounds like a really important event. Um, I think everyone should get along and attend. Um, thanks so much for joining us this morning, Lucy. Thanks, Heath. Thanks, Ella. See you later. Bye. And that was Lucy Honan uh, from the Refugee Action Collective talking to us about a rally on in Melbourne at 4.30 today, uh, calling on the government to grant permanent visas to a lot of refugees um, who are currently on temporary protection visas or safe haven enterprise visas. Um, and, yeah, she was saying there, it's uh, just incredibly restricting um, and limits you in so many ways. As we were saying before the interview, Claudia, a big thing would be um, being able to see your family and be reunited with your family. And, yeah, that's just one of the many ways you're restricted.
3: Mm, and so much um, uncertainty that these people have already endured and to have that continuing uncertainty must be really unbearable on top of all the other stresses um that daily life and you know the barriers that you face in a uh, a country that's not your own
0: yeah absolutely and i just try and think of um situations which don't compare but might give us an idea of what it's like to live with uncertainty you know if you um hear that the place you're living might um be changing and you're going to have to move or you're waiting on approval to to a course or even when we're in lockdown and didn't know what would happen, how much that changes every aspect of your life and limits you. So to be in a different country and unsure if you can even live in this country would just be, yeah, a huge mental barrier.
3: And dealing with the bureaucracy every time you need to make an application for something um, and being in a nebulous category must be, um, you know, an added trauma really
0: (laughs) yeah absolutely and you just feel so yeah powerless when you're Mm -hmm. faced with this big scary and inhumane system (laughs) anyway um on that note a sad one to end on but uh yeah we do need to wrap up now so um thanks very much for joining us today a big thank you to all our guests on the show um we'll be back with you next week uh, but in the meantime stick around for stick together
3: have a great wednesday
6: I got a message for you, you got a message for me. One day we'll come together and sit down
3: by the fire. Every Wednesday at 11am, join me, Bunzalini, at the fire in Community Radio
6: 3CR. Three hours of historically informed, critical analysis
7: of Aboriginal affairs and the ongoing political movement. For land rights, treaty, sovereignty, and the cessation of genocide. Featuring the best of black music. Bundles Fire, 11am to 2pm, every Wednesday on Community Radio 3CR.
3: see our Breakfast would like to thank the New International
1: Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find NIBS in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check
2: out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.